everyone. Welcome to the Triage Podcast. We are so excited to be with you today. I am Christy and I studied health administration at Rutgers University and I currently work in the specialty care space, specifically working in oncology and cardiology. And I'm Rachna, your other host. I am currently a second year medical student in New York And unfortunately, today, our third host couldn't join us. Her name is Natalie. She's currently a master's in public health student in uh, New Jersey. So we're really excited to be starting this today. It's something that we've been thinking about doing for over a year now, right? Yes. Um, So we're finally kind of getting down to it. And Christy, you want to talk about what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, of course. So today we will be talking about COVID-19. And when we originally came up with the concept for this podcast and for this this project that we're working on, we wanted to bring light to bring to light uh, the issue that our country has with uh, managing chronic conditions um, and talk about other hot, hot, hot healthcare topics that we normally aren't speaking about in in the media or as a community. And we will be talking about that eventually, but we wanted to start off with COVID-19, of course, because it is what we're experiencing right now. And it has, um, it has shown the cracks in our system and the system that we were going to talk about before. So before we really get started, we just want to reiterate that we are attempting to be as accurate as possible, and things change so quickly. This is a global pandemic, and it's only been a few months, and so there's a lot we don't know yet, and the smartest people in the world still don't really know what's going on, so we just want to start off by saying that, and we want to shout out all the healthcare workers and essential workers. Uh, Just today, there have been petitions started to relieve nurses, physicians, and health professionals from student debt. Dr. Fauci is getting a security detail because he is getting threats. So there's a lot of noise going on right now with this with this virus and with this pandemic. And so we wanted to kind of give you a digestible version of what is going on. So Rachna, do you want to talk about how this spread to humans and kind of how this all started? So I think a lot of us know by now that This virus first originated from Wuhan in 2019, and we're not exactly sure how it spread to humans or what animal exactly spread it, but um, it's believed that it first started with a bat and then somehow spread to another animal and then spread to humans. So the market that they're finding the first cases from was a live market, um, meaning that they have exotic animals that are allowed for people to purchase. And they believe because people were in such close contact with these animals that somehow the virus was able to mutate to a form that can infect humans and it infected humans there. And, you know, this is not the first of the viruses to do this. There's other viruses in the family of COVID-19 that also spread this way. There was SARS and there was MERS, which we all know were also serious public health concerns when they first came out. I mean, they were also very severe respiratory syndromes. So this is not the first time we've seen this virus, but I think this is probably the first time that it spread so widely around the world. And I don't know, the crazy thing about all of this is that 
you know, this started in Wuhan, China. This started in one area of the world, and it's so crazy to see how something so small, literally a little particle that is not alive, <laughs> could just be spread all over the world. And I don't know, another crazy thing, I think, was that Christy, our other host, was in China in January. So right yes. after <laughs> this all started, she was there visiting. So Christy, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. So the wet market that uh, you're talking about, Rachna, and how it um, originated, as we believe, in Wuhan, China in December. Uh, one thing to note is that Wuhan is a huge travel hub in China and in Asia in general. A lot of people, when they're traveling around there, will have a layover flight or spend a few days there. So it already was um, a huge issue that something was spreading here because people are constantly moving in and out of this area. And when this was all happening, this was right before Chinese New Year, where citizens leave major cities within China and travel to rural areas. So you have this travel hub, you have Chinese New Year, so it's a lot of things in one place, and it's honestly the wrong time. Um, so you have all of this going on at one time with travel and people moving quickly. And so, yes, I was in China right around this time. And a key point that I'd like to make just before I go into this little anecdote is that I think it is fair to be angry with people who are traveling now um, if they don't need to be, uh, whether it's for work or to come and help out um, the hot spots. Like a lot of people are traveling to New York uh, to help out with the cause. So not I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about People who went on spring break two weeks ago, knowing what the situation was like in China and then seeing what it was like in Italy and still decided to to go on spring break. Um, I went to China on January 25th, and this was only a week after the first there was a first report of a mysterious pneumonia-like disease. Yeah, and I as remember you. Know, you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I remember you messaging us about this and you were sending us the articles and you're like, you know, I don't know if this is going to be a problem. And we were all like, yeah, it should be fine. Like these types of viruses, these types of flu-like things happen every year around this time. So yeah. there's just not, I don't think there's a lot of data around this virus or numbers even on how many exactly. people were infected with this virus at that time in January. Yeah. It was only a week before I left and I, I was speaking with the person I was visiting. I was speaking with friends and I was really thinking about all of my options. I'm a very anxious and paranoid person. So I <laughs> was already nervous about this trip. And so I was doing my due diligence to make sure I was making the right call. So, um, I applied for my visa three weeks before my trip. I got, it got approved from the government. Um, and so sorry, there's a car going by, um, mood, um, just like we have to hold each other accountable during this time, I think it's important that we also hold our governments and the institutions that provide us with information uh, accountable because things change quickly and I could only make decisions based on the information that I had. I had shortened my trip to be safe. I was originally going to Beijing and Shanghai and I cut it to just Beijing um, because adding in a train to Shanghai was you know, I wanted to limit the amount that I was moving around in a country where something was potentially spreading. Um, and, you know, when I was calling to change my trip, travel sites had no idea what I was talking about. Some did. 
Um, but I, you know, I was able to cancel some of my hotels and get a lot of my money back, was able to cancel the train ticket. But my first initial hotel in Beijing, I could not cut that short because they said that it wasn't bad in Beijing. Um, and, you know, so if, the, if these travel companies don't know what's going on, if airlines don't know what's going on, it's hard to also hold citizens accountable when these institutions don't really know what's going on. So just wanted to say that. But yeah, I I left on January 25th, which was right at the beginning of Chinese New Year, Lunar New Year. And um, I get on my flight and I'm in an empty section of the plane. I got... Um, I got upgraded to Economy Plus, and I'm, you know, that was why, because people were canceling their, their tickets, but uh, I was still going. Um, and when we got to the Beijing airport, we had an intake paper asking us where we had been, um, if we were in Wuhan or in the Hubei province the past 14 days, did we have any of the symptoms? And every single person was wearing a mask right when we got off the plane. All of us on the plane were wearing masks. Um, and then right before we handed our paper to anyone, we had to get fingerprinted and there was someone standing there at each kiosk to wipe it down after everyone put their fingerprint in. Then you handed up the intake paper to someone working at the airport and then you walked through those infamous fever checks. Um, and so, yeah, I, I went from the airport to the hotel and the hotel had fever checks where they were writing everyone's temperature down, um, their room number, what time they came in. And every time you went in, you had to get your fever checked, even if you left, wow. you know, multiple That's times actually, throughout the day. Um, interesting that you talk about that because originally this hotel was telling you, you couldn't cancel your reservation, right? Yes. So I think that really <laughs> just highlights like how quickly day to day things were changing over there. Exactly. They didn't let you cancel it because they said it wasn't bad. But then when you got there, they were doing these fever checks every day. Yeah, wow. exactly. Yeah, it was it was crazy. And then, um, you know, other places we could walk around freely. But then like a few days in um, entrance points to different places we were going at had uh, fever checks. Um, every single person was wearing a mask. I did not see a single person not wearing a mask in Beijing. Um but it was it was Chinese New Year, and so people were still enjoying the sights. Everyone was staying away from one another. Like I did not come in contact directly with anyone when I was there, so I think that's an important point to make. But you know, people wanted to enjoy the holiday and were staying away from each other. And a lot of the sites were closed, but the ones that were open, you know, people were being smart about what was going on. But every day, more and more things shut down, and so I decided to leave China early. Um, and luckily I was able to move my, by then, uh, airlines knew what was going on and were letting people move flights, uh, for free, which was great. Um, but yeah, I got to the Beijing airport and like I said before, we had that fingerprinting that was gone entirely in a matter of days. Uh, so it shows you how quickly they were making changes, um, and trying to limit the amount that people were touching shared spaces, uh, had another intake form before I got into security where I was saying if I'd been to Hubei, say if I had been to the Wuhan, in, to Wuhan, um, and then another fever check and then got on my plane. Every single person on the plane was wearing a mask, including the flight attendants and the pilots. Uh, and then I land in the U.S. and there's no screening, uh, just customs officers asking where we've been in China. No one spoke Mandarin. There was just a sign from the CDC above baggage claim saying, if you don't feel well, call your primary care physician. And as we know, many people do not have access to a primary care physician or don't have one, um, regardless of having insurance. So 
Yes, I know that was a long explanation, but uh, it really opened my eyes. And I was expecting two things to happen. I was expecting, you know, like I said, I had to have a visa through the government to go to China. So the government knew that I was in China and knew that I was coming back. And I got no, I was expecting to get notified from the government and saying, hey, you had just been to this place. There's a um, a very infectious disease. Please stay put. Um, here are some pointers of how to stop the spread. I was expecting the airline to reach out to me or have some sort of information, and that didn't happen. And then another thing was I worked for a huge company in the U.S., one of the biggest companies in our country, and it is focused in healthcare. And another big company and other other companies that aren't even adjacent to healthcare adjacent um, had blocked employees who had been to Asia, not even China, who had been to Asia from coming to work for two weeks. So working from home, making them work from home for two weeks. And I reached out to my company and, and wondered the policy because I had just been in China and there was no policy. So, you know, I stayed home, you know, right when I went right to work, came right back and was washed my hands, checked my fever twice a day. I, I didn't have a fever, but checked my temperature twice a day. But, you know, I had to go into work. I had no choice. Um, so yeah, those, those two things were huge and now living it now and we're all social distancing, we're all not going into work. Um, if, if we're privileged, like I, I have a job, but I don't go to work, um, in person. Uh, it, you know, it shows you how quickly things can happen and things can change, but yeah, it opened my eyes a lot living that experience. And you had, you know, you had a public health experience too in New York. And so, Walk us through that. What did you see when when you were when dealing with that? Yeah, so about a year ago, maybe like a year and a half ago at this point, um, I got sick with this kind of viral GI illness. And, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. I ended up being okay. But um, they had to report that I got this illness because it was not something that they commonly saw in New York. So, and it was also contagious. So they had to call me and my roommates from the New York State Health Department. And um, they basically were just making sure that my roommates got vaccinated so that they didn't, you know, somehow get it. And um, the funniest thing about that whole thing was that it was a foodborne illness. So mm -hmm. they should have been asking me where I ate food, basically, to figure out if it had spread to anyone else. And they didn't ask me that. They asked my roommates. They tried to ask my roommates at least, but my roommates were like, we don't know where she ate. You know, she, we're not keeping tabs on her all the time. Um, but they never called me and asked me those questions. And I think that just really highlights the different disparities there are, not disparities, yes. but different holes there are in the public health system. And that was a year ago. So if those holes continue to be there until yeah. now, I can see why kind of you slip through the cracks and they didn't check up on you because they had no good way of doing that. Nope. And hopefully moving forward from this whole thing, they do realize that this is a problem and, you know, they need to keep track of these different types of illnesses that are going on around the world to make sure it doesn't come to the U.S. Um, but going off of what you said about masks too, that was something that public health officials were originally like, this is not something that is necessary. This is not a good idea. And, you know, I kind of get why they were saying that originally, 
because there is such a shortage of healthcare worker masks. So this is like surgical masks or N95. There's such a shortage that the people who actually need it, the people who are actually face-to-face with these um, COVID-19 positive patients don't have the materials they need to keep themselves protected. So I get why they said that, because they didn't want people to panic buy and rush in and buy all these masks that, you know, the people who are on the front lines needed. But now they're saying that people should be wearing homemade masks. And I also understand why they're saying this, because um, a little bit about the virus, it's a respiratory virus. It spreads through droplets, and it can spread and infect anyone who's within six feet of the person who is coughing or sneezing. So right now what they're finding is that some people have the corona or have COVID-19 and it's very mild and they don't even know or realize they have yeah. it. And some people get it so severe that they end up in the hospitals. So they're trying to prevent those people who are less symptomatic from spreading it to others right now because they're not sure exactly why, but there's such a wide severity of cases that they're trying to make sure those asymptomatic people aren't spreading it to someone who may have like some sort of underlying healthcare problem or health problem that yeah. would make that virus so much worse for them. So it's like interesting because you said that in China, like they were already wearing masks when you were in there um, in January. So it's kind of weird how it took so long for this policy to roll through here, but um, it is, I think it is really because they were trying to prevent people from panic buying like the toilet paper at the stores. Oh my gosh. That's, a, that's still an issue today, but um, they were just trying to prevent people from panic buying the supplies that were needed by healthcare workers. Yeah. But um, going into those susceptible populations that we are protecting, Christy, I know you did a little bit of research on these people. Could you elaborate as to who is more susceptible to getting a severe form of this disease? Yeah, of course. So this kind of goes off of this hits home to why we started this idea, the idea for this podcast in the first place before COVID-19, because if you study healthcare, you know that people with chronic conditions in the U.S., um, that is the biggest problem we have in the U.S. is we have so many people living with chronic conditions and we don't have policies, we don't have the practices in place to help people manage those conditions and keep them out of the hospital, keep them from going uh, through unnecessary testing. And so to now have a virus on top of that and really um, impacting people with chronic conditions the most, it really sheds light onto the situation that we have. And so of course, people aged 65 years and older are suscept are ha- will have more more likely to have um, a worse outcome if they contract this virus. And that goes to say, you know, when you get older, you do become more susceptible to disease and and viruses. But people who are 65 and older are that population that most likely have one or two chronic conditions that they're already living with. So you add this on top of it and it's just a recipe for a disaster. Um, People who live in nursing homes or long-term care facilities, this is another place where this was already a problem. These facilities do not have enough funding to begin with. So to add a virus on top of this where people are living closely together, um, they already don't have policies in place to protect folks who live in these facilities, it, it just, um, it really shows all of the cracks that we have. And, um, there are other 
underlying medical conditions that are already not controlled and have a huge risk factor in terms of this virus. So of course, chronic lung disease, moderate to severe asthma, like we said, this is a respiratory illness and so high impact on lung uh, function and people who have serious heart conditions. And so Rachana, you're really good at explaining this and, and why really hitting home on heart conditions is important in the U.S. Uh, based on the statistics that you've been able to pull out. Yeah. So um, if you look at the amount of people in the U.S. who have underlying heart conditions, look at the if we look at the statistics specifically on high blood pressure, 103 million people in the U.S. have high blood pressure, which I think is absolutely insane. That's just a astronomical number but um Mm -hmm. you know you look at the number of people who have that and you also look at the people who have number of people who have diabetes and 34.2 million people have diabetes so they're saying right now that people with these diseases are more susceptible to a severe form of this infection and I think that's why it's getting so bad in the U.S. particularly is that we have so many people with these underlying conditions and like you yep. were saying before it just makes it a recipe for disaster when some respiratory illness like this infects all these popula- populations so yeah and a lot of these chronic conditions are made worse when you throw in income disparities and housing disparities um asthma is an ailment that is very prevalent among people who are lower income and people who are housing insecure and these are also the people who are most likely wor- working in essential services positions. And so yeah. we don't, already don't give people enough support. And then now we're making, they have to work and they're not able to work from home. Um, and so that is just heartbreaking. And then chronic kidney disease, undergoing dialysis, again, very prevalent among people 65 yeah, and, and those over. those people also have to be going to these dialysis centers. They have to be going out. So they don't really exactly. have a choice as to stay home. And also going off of what you were saying with the income disparities, a lot of these people don't have health insurance or don't have great health Mm -hmm. insurance. So they can't even afford the medications they need to pay for, you know, treating their diseases that they have. Yeah. And we're going to talk about this in a future episode, but like thinking about medication and people having access to their day-to-day lives in terms of healthcare People who are undergoing chemotherapy, um, they now most likely have to uh, move from injectable medication to oral medication. And so that's a huge thing to think about in terms of people getting their medications to them. But if you look at all of the um, susceptible, the list of susceptible um, populations in terms of what chronic conditions they are experiencing, a lot of these you can't see. And so when you talk about the conversation that our country has been having with masks, there's been a lot of anger, which I think is okay, is, is warranted because healthcare workers need masks, um, specifically those N95 masks. And, um, but um, a lot of these chronic conditions that people are experiencing, you can't see it. And so if you see someone with a mask, if you have seen someone in the past with a mask, you just don't know if, if they are immunocompromised if they have diabetes, if they have chronic lung disease or severe asthma. And so I just ask you to, um, you know, stay vigilant and stay informed, but also don't judge others if you don't know the full story of what they're going through, because 
like what happens often with chronic conditions, we don't know everyone who is experiencing them because you can't see that with your own two eyes most of the time. Yeah, just to go off of that, I know I talked a little bit earlier about the new mask policy. So um, we definitely don't want to be taking those from healthcare workers, but there's a lot of instructions online I've been seeing on how to sew masks at home so that we can just prevent um, the people who may be asymptomatic from spreading it to other people. So, um, and also another thing is I've seen like a lot of small local businesses saying that they're sewing these masks. So another way to support your local businesses at these time, at this time is to really just buy it from there. Yeah, 100%. Great point. Um, so we wanted to wrap this up by giving you a picture of what the cases look like right now in the U.S. This was, these are numbers updated on Monday, April 6th at around, I think they were updated at 3 p.m. So of course, this is probably out of date when you're listening to this, but uh, we just have some key topics we want to talk about. So when this was a first coming to the U.S., it was pretty easy to track where people were coming from. A lot of the cases were coming from cruises or from people who had been out of the country recently, but now it is getting it is near impossible to figure out how folks are getting it because now it is just full-blown community spread. And the curve has started to flatten in some of the key states like New Jersey. The governor, uh, Phil Murphy, reported that he is seeing a lower number of cases each day, but that's not to say that things are going to get better soon. The hospital system is still overwhelmed, and so we still need to uh, be safe and stay home if we can. Um, if you look at the at what cases are connected to it again like we were talking about with chronic conditions this just shows uh the flaws in our healthcare system and the flaws in how we deal with the spread of disease um the highest number of cases that can be connected to a single area are um connected to Cook County jail in Chicago with 312 cases the second is travel within the US the third is travel overseas. The fourth is aboard the USS Theodore Roosevelt in Guam. And then the fifth highest is the life care nursing facility in Kirkland, Washington. And so all of these top five uh, key, you know, points of where we can connect these cases are, you know, we don't have enough support for folks who are incarcerated in our system. Um, our nursing facilities are highly underfunded. And so this really sheds light on the issues that we've already had in our country and how we do treat um, citizens differently. Yeah, um, especially with the jail thing. I mean, I think that's really sad to see that we can't, I know that these people are criminals, but we do have some sort of responsibility to protect them. So it just shows a failing of the healthcare system there. And I'm hoping that moving forward from all of this, when this all eventually ends, we learn a few things about how to contain these types of infectious diseases and we can prevent this from happening so widespread in the future. And um, I think even if you look at the number of cases that are listed here that show um, different areas where there has been little pockets of infections. I think this list totals maybe a thousand cases, right? Like 1500 cases. Yep. That means all of the other cases. How many cases are there, Christy, in total? 357,036 right now. That US. means of all of those cases, only 1500 are really accounted for in terms of how they spread. And I think that's 
crazy in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it just shows you how infectious this is. Yeah, and how we are not able to really... I understand to a certain point, like, once a disease gets so widespread, you can't really track it anymore, but... I think if there had been some more protocols in the beginning, like when you went to China um, and when you came back, if there was more protocols on following up on you, Mm -hmm. then maybe, you know, some of these, we wouldn't be in the place that we are today in terms of how bad it is here. I 100% agree. And yeah, we, um, we just wanted to start off our podcast with this series because of course it's important to stay informed out there and, stay vigilant, but it's also important to know when to turn off the news a little bit. And we think that, um, you know, coming from the lens that we have working in healthcare and studying healthcare and also just being everyday people living through this, um, we thought that this could be a more digestible way to take in information about what's going on with COVID-19. And so thank you so much for tuning in today. Of course, this was just the first episode and a, and a brief overview of what's going on, but our future episodes will touch on things like uh, further spread, how it's connected to past epidemics, um, how this is uh, impacting people who suffer from chronic conditions, and, and then how we move forward from this. Um, so stay tuned. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about. Um, any last thoughts, Regina? Um, yeah, I think you wrapped that up beautifully. Just stay vigilant, stay healthy, and follow us at The Triage on Instagram to see updates on when we're uploading our next episode. Yeah, thank you, everyone. Thanks, guys.